0: Welcome to The Brand Collective, a podcast about our favorite brands, featuring stories from the marketers and creatives behind them. I'm your host, Nick Ross. With me, Mackenzie Koss, marketer extraordinaire. Let's get into it.
1: Welcome back to The Brand Collective podcast. Today, we have Mike Bordieri, senior marketing consultant at a little company we all know, LinkedIn. Welcome on, Mike. We're so excited to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to be
2: here. I am pumped up, ready to go Monday morning. Let's do this. Let's do it. I'm ready. I'm ready.
0: Oh, that is the exact response I expect from someone at LinkedIn. Like that is so pro. Oh no. (laughs) I don't even know what like LinkedIn,
2: you know, what people think about LinkedIn anymore. I've been there for two and a half years. So I'm like, I, you know, our identity, how people, our brand, it's, it's a mystery to me at this point.
0: Yeah, that's such a fascinating uh, yeah. aspect about LinkedIn is the the difference between what the sort of lay person sees in LinkedIn versus what maybe LinkedIn tries to uh, steer that person to perceive as LinkedIn. Right. Well, yeah, once I had a,
2: about like a year ago, I had a client presentation with actually it was these uh, awesome team at T-Mobile. who do their executive comms. So all of them were super smart, but uh, they all showed up kind of like casual. I mean, it was a virtual video call. And I had on, I always wear like a, a blazer for those things. Some little, little more, uh, a little more formal, I guess. But the guy was like, uh, one of the, the gentlemen on the team was like, oh, it's very LinkedIn of you to wear a button down shirt and a blazer. And I was like, oh, is that LinkedIn? okay. okay."
0: Just a little bit more pro, hey. a little bit more, Yeah, you I like know, that. You know, Yeah. business cash. No ties, but yeah in person, it translates. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about your journey to get to LinkedIn?
2: Yes, I can. And it's a good, I, I've been thinking about this too recently. Someone else asked me this. My first job that was in like creative was uh, after college. I worked at this content marketing agency that was in Boston. So I went to school in Boston. I stayed there for about a year after. It's called Brafton. And I was a writer there. Uh, this was like 2009, 2010. So Felt very lucky to have a job at that time uh, and still always do. I think that like has stayed with me ever since because that time period was just so crazy. Grafton had all these different clients in all these different industries. And so two of the clients that I wrote for, like these SEO articles, essentially, were in <laughs> their their uh, businesses were about blue-green algae. So like removing blue-green algae and then demand generation, which is, it has to do with the electric grid and... <laughs> I won't get too technical on it, but what really stuck out to me at the time, I remember being like 22 and writing about these topics. I was like, wow, blue-green algae is really interesting. And the way that it is created is really interesting because it's from runoff, from like phosphorus, from fertilizer, and then it goes down the Mississippi River and it ends in the Gulf. And then there's these certain years where these blue green algae blooms are everywhere and they're like toxic to animal life. They're not good for people. You can get rid of them. But I remember thinking like, wow, this is actually really interesting. And because it was this beat I had to cover, I would like constantly have these Google alerts for it. And I was like, these blue green algae blooms, they're fucking everywhere, man. I was like, they're, it's crazy. Like, this is a real problem. <laughs> and similar with demand gen, I was just at the time I was like, OK, this is about the electric grid. But I learned how the U.S. electric grid is divided into these different like regional grids and then how Texas had its own grid. Right. And, you know, where this is going. So then the past year where Texas has had all these problems, I was like, this is not like a new problem. This is something we knew about a decade ago. Yeah. And I think like my main takeaways from that job were one, um, you have to like any topic is really interesting, even when you think it's boring. And I, I think that like applies to B2B a lot. People are like B2B is boring. I'm like, no, it's not boring. Like you just have to be a good storyteller and like bring people into these worlds because a lot of times the people who work in them, they know how interesting these these topics are and they're so passionate about them, but it's about relaying that to another audience. And so I think that that was something that I definitely picked up at Brafton because I was going through, it was like uh, my career trajectory and I'm like, how did I get to LinkedIn? So I think that was something that I learned at my first job. And then at my second job, uh, once I moved to New York, um, I got a job as a content manager at this like boutique real estate company and kind of hilarious. I was managing um, uh, their whole goal of their content strategy was to get people to go to their website and to sign up to browse buildings. You know, they wanted people to buy from them, et cetera. And so uh, they had a former architectural critic for the New York Times, Carter B. Horsley, this hilarious kind of uh, cantankerous man who had written for the times for decades. And I was his manager. I was like 25. What the hell was I doing managing this guy? (laughs) And we, but I learned so much when we developed this like really strong friendship, but I got to do all these different projects like with like multimedia. And I, I started to understand like, okay, everything's interesting. If this is like my first career lesson, like any topic is interesting. And then I started to see like, oh, content can be this like really effective tool at getting the right people to come and drive your business. And so this is like, was my next kind of like a lesson that I picked up there. From there, I moved to the agency world um, at Group SJR, which is like a WPP company. And kind of was like, uh, it took took it to like another level because it was just a very intense pressure cooker kind of place, which I love because I'm a very intense person. So I like like a lot of pressure on me. I think I respond well to it. I always joke that like, I respond well with the sword of Damocles hanging over me. If anyone here is into like mythology. Um, Yes. Okay. Right. I don't know (laughs) if anyone else has been on here and talked about the sword of Damocles, but uh, there my biggest client was the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And I just, uh, I got to do such cool stuff with them. Uh, They had launched this website uh, that was all about kind of like rebranding and they wanted to be about highlighting entrepreneurs, basically. So they wanted to show like cool businesses in the US. So it tied back to what I had first done because I was like, if any topic is interesting in any, like any topic period, when you talk to entrepreneurs, it's just like another level. They're just so inspiring. They're so interesting. They were so gracious. And I got to write these stories about these pretty awesome people, and they gave me so many opportunities. I got to interview like Colin Powell and Ken Burns and like, Drew Bledsoe. Got to fly all over the place, and that's I like that there could not be a more
0: disparate group of people. Yeah, <laughs> like, I know Cole totally Powell. because they're all
2: then, yeah. Because a lot of them was like their next place. Like Drew Bledsoe wasn't in the NFL anymore, but he had started this amazing wine company, Doubleback, and he had this amazing wine that he's making and still makes uh, out of like Walla Walla, Washington, and he's just so knowledgeable and talking to these people, you're like, this is so cool. And like, I I wrote and made like, we made videos with them. We got to do all this stuff. But uh, a lot of the creatives there were, they didn't like to be client facing, but I love being client facing. I always have. And so like, I leaned into that and it was really, again, it was just like kind of the natural evolution where from what I had previously done, I was like, Oh, and now I understand the why behind all this. So I get like, why do they care about certain KPIs? Like, Why are they doing this? Like this, how this fits in this broader kind of like biz dev strategy that they had. And, you know, I got to do like, I just did stuff I'd never, I mean, I had no experience. I had to make like a panel at this conference they made. And I was like, like organize a panel. Like, I don't know how to organize a panel, but you know, we figured it out. I wrote uh, the stories. Their main KPI was, they basically wanted press pickups from mainstream publications, like the Washington Post and the New York Times, Fortune, Inc., and so having that is like in the back of my mind, whenever I was writing a story, it wasn't like the number one thing that dictated it. But I was, I was always like, what is this lens that we can write that's, that's interesting, that's this unique take? Because really to get a press pickup, you just have to do something different, right? So if people have written about something before, what hasn't been written about it? And, you know, came from that, we like had some viral stories. I wrote this story about poop, literal poop. Whoa. That was, I think, the most viral story that, that, that Group SGR, at least at the time, had ever had but it was a fascinating story about fecal matter transplants. I don't know if everybody know about this. Yes. I okay. know about, it about through that. A South Park okay. episode. Okay. So <laughs> there it is. But you know, it was this this little startup in Boston was doing these fecal matter transplants and so it was a profile of them and we calculated they were paying people who had like the ideal poop specimen. Uh they were paying them a certain amount of money every year. And so the, um, audience, the person who focused on kind of like planting stories, like one of the PR people there, we kind of, uh, game planned. We were like, how much money could you make if you donated, if you like uh, if you volunteered and you, or if you pooped basically for them on demand for a year, how much money could you make? And this little diagram that we made got picked up everywhere. And it was this really cool, interesting story. And so, again, it was just kind of like this natural evolution of, um, you know, not talking about poop anymore. Just what I learned at SJR about understanding, like, you're not just making something in a vacuum. It's like, who's consuming this? Like, what are the goals of it? And then why that matters. Uh, and I realize I'm talking a lot. So if I'm talking too much, tell me to shut no, up please, and we have speed this along. No,
1: this is awesome.
2: Um,
0: we've been on a journey already. Boom. I love
2: it. I know. I yeah. was like thinking about it today. And I was like, <laughs> I forgot. One of my friends was saying, she was like, remember the poop story? And I was like, yeah, I do remember the poop. So yes. It was like it was a very cool moment. I was like so amped about it. Uh, I was like, mom, I'm like viral because of shit. Uh, and to this day, you know, it's a cool story. But from there at the time, like uh, branded content was like the thing. And yeah. um, someone at Elite Daily had reached out to me, but coming to help, they were creating a branded content team. And so I went to Elite Daily, which at the time was owned by the Daily Mail. And it was there that it just, again, kind of like natural evolution, like everything I learned just started to become like more pronounced. So it was like a black and white photograph before it was like now cover of color, like vivid HD, because I was like, all that matters in media is... Uh, you know, performance really for those branded content uh, studios because they promise, you know, impressions. They'll promise a number of KPIs, and you have to hit them. So it's not just enough to to make something you think is cool. You have to understand your audience. You have to understand the brand that wants to work with you, and you have to pitch a story that is executable and will then hit these very specific KPIs that your media planning team has come up with. And if they don't hit them, they have to put a ton of money behind them and it's just not gonna be profitable. And so being there was super interesting just to see that whole world and the RFP world, which to be honest, I just was like, and to this day, I can't believe RFP and the model that agencies work with is still as pronounced as it is. Cause it's just such, I don't see who benefits from that, the way that things are done. And anyone who's listening to this, who doesn't know about that model, it's like you get an RFP, you have, it's always like this super fast turnaround. You don't really have any context most of the time. And a lot of times you send these back and you just hear nothing. So you'll get these RFPs from random companies or brands looking, here's these spend thresholds, give us a media plan, give us a plan with all these ideas. You just never hear back. So I also learned that a brainstorm has to be done in a very specific way to be successful. Because if you're just doing brainstorms and they're meandering, it is, I don't know if you've ever sat in on any of these, I'm sure you have, just, it's like pure misery. When you're just in a room and everyone's like, we don't really know what we want to do. Or you just go down these like <laughs> circuitous like paths and you're like, what? How? why are we even talking about anymore? So learned a lot there. And then Bustle actually acquired Relique daily. And I was luck, super fortunate to get a full-time offer from Bustle. And um, uh, when I went to Bustle, I was like, oh, so this is how like a really successful media property does things. And it wasn't that Alito was successful, but Bustle really was and still is pretty top of the media food chain that way. And so I just saw like how things were organized, that they had many of the same problems, but like the ways that they, that the editorial team and the Brandon team would work together, that was different. The editorial team at Bustle was, it was much more like collaborative and it wasn't antagonistic at all. And just like having like a high level like strategic narrative that Bustle had that uh, about like who they were, why they were there, like how they showed up was like so important. And so it was a really interesting learning experience, uh, being in media, but I swear I'm almost at LinkedIn. And so if everyone is like falling asleep, I apologize. (laughs) But from there I was, uh, went into tech startups. I worked at this company called way up, which is an early career, like HR tech SaaS startup. And over the course of being there, eventually became in charge of like B2B marketing, uh, employer brand and lead gen eventually like rolled up to me too, um, for a long period of time, almost until I I left way up, but way up was just the craziest learning curve of my career. I think like most startups are, and I just learned so much there. I learned like how to devise and throw a full day, like conference for senior level, you know, TA people, which I never thought I could ever do much. Like I said earlier, I never thought I could like pull up a panel you have to like, you know, do a full day conference. I had no idea. I never planned anything before like that. I mean, like I have dinner parties, you know, I like to like host friends, but that was pretty much the extent of my like planning abilities. We just like working with the team. We were able to like crush that. I had to make a marketing strategy because we never really had a fully fleshed out B2B team before they kind of dabbled in B2B, but they hadn't really devoted full resources to it. So we to make a content strategy, we hired a content writer, um, I basically, again, just like natural evolution, like each step of the way, learning more, like kind of like fleshing out more about like what marketing is and a way up. It just was like, it came fast and furious, but it was just such an amazing learning curve. And I worked with some of the most brilliant people I've ever worked with, like Melissa Weir, who is the most amazing B2B marketer I've ever worked with. That's why I got to call her out. Everyone should want to hire her. She's absolutely brilliant, phenomenal. Steve kuchin and Ruth are just these people who are just such hard workers, just brilliant people. And again, just like figuring out how sales and marketing work together and seeing like what that looks like, what happens when there's synergy and what happens when there's tension and just really understanding like all parts of like that sales marketing alignment. But LinkedIn called when I was there and I was like, Oh, this is a company that I always would talk to want to, you know, if they came, if they came a knock in, I'm not going to say no, And then it kind of just happened organically. So I've been fortunate to happen the past few times for jobs. And they were like, we have this team. We consult for some of LinkedIn's big marketing clients. And we'd love you to come on board and, you know, help our clients, you know, enhance or drive more value from their marketing on LinkedIn. And so that's what I've been doing for the past, I guess, like two and a half years now.
0: Wow. So I'll pause because it's a lot. So I (laughs) apologize for that. journey this is awesome. <laughs> <It's> journey. <laughs> no, it was wonderful. It's such like an epic yeah. quest of of gaining skills and then utilizing those skills so actively in each successive role and and sort of pulling back from content to strategy, correct?
2: Yeah, basically. And I just dis- at the time
0: I didn't realize that it was what's happening, but then as I've been like reflecting recently on some
2: of these things, I'm like I guess that's exactly what happened over the course of my career. Just like each step it just like made sense even though at the time to me it didn't necessarily it wasn't like always linear right which i think these things rarely are but looking back i'm like yeah. i actually see linear growth when i really think
0: about it or step back right it is fascinating cuz cuz as a creative i find that that specific viewpoint i find the most benefit but it only might be because it's the most safe cuz i i look at things through that like how do i tell this little story in the best way which is always the goal
2: though i don't want to say that i'm like it's not cuz storytelling is like what is most important but it's like you got to kind of balance right like a bunch of different not the i hate the word things it's so nebulous but you do have to balance a bunch of things right when you're trying to figure out like what's the best way to tell this story for the people i'm trying to tell it to who need to hear this story right and so i always think about that i think about how it just applies everywhere too to like any anything you do in life
0: yeah yeah but having those stories informed by such like a uh an increased level of awareness or increased level of what these businesses want and what this audience wants. Um, it's just, it's cool. It's inspiring. Um, can you talk specifically about B2B marketing with, from your vantage and maybe what companies are doing it well or how companies do it well?
2: What companies are doing B2B marketing? Well, there's actually a lot of them, right? And there's a lot that are at the early stages of this that have a lot of room for improvement we always like to say areas for opportunity versus like weakness but um i think when i look at some companies that are doing well and i was again thinking about i've been thinking about this more and more the past couple of weeks too because clients always want to know when i'm in a room with someone they're like who's doing this well and you know i can point to apple but everyone's like okay but they're apple like we you know and even if they are just newer to b to b to b like that's not our team like we can never be like apple and I get that. Like, I, you know, I have, I can quibble with some of what they're saying, but I understand that. So I've been trying to think of like brands that are maybe not Apple, right? Or some of those larger ones that first come to mind that have strong consumer brands. Like, what are some good B2B ones? And a couple that I've been thinking about are Invesco, which is, you would think, right? It's like, it's a big investment company. And just being in that industry, it's highly regulated. It's usually highly regulated industries they are more loath to, um, take chances or risks, but Invesco has really quirky, cool branding. They do full funnel marketing. They have a strong point of view. They're just doing something very different from almost everyone else in their vertical. So I think Invesco is doing a great job. Um, Accenture, which maybe when you think sexy company, I don't know if Accenture comes to mind, but again, like in the pro serve sector professional services, there's a lot of, uh, we always say the sea of saveness. And Accenture is an uh, example of a brand that it manages to be unique and distinctive the way that they show up. Right. So a lot of uh, professional services firms, again, highly regulated, they'll be very like risk averse. It can look, look all their creative can look the same. And Accenture stands out because a lot of these pro-serve firms and you'll see this if you if you go and look um, and very smart people work there. And they're always interested in doing better, I should say. But there's a lot of like dark backgrounds font that's hard to read and the messaging can be very like muddled but Accenture you just line them up next to each other and you're like oh this is this is like night and day because Accenture is bright it's white backgrounds it's real people it's kind of like sometimes like very um like uh, avant-garde design work they'll do in their creative highlighting like real people and it just like looks different it's like if you're going through a feed, you know, we always say we want to be thumb stopping. Something we talk about Accenture makes like thumb stopping content, which is cool because we don't necessarily think a pro firm could do that. Um, I'd also say Salesforce, amazing right. marketing across the board. Yeah. And something they do is they have these characters, these like anthropomorphized characters uh, and They're not my cup of tea, but that's why I like to use them as an example because they don't like, I'm not their prime audience. So I don't need to like like these little bears that they have, but they have this consistency. Everything they show up, they have these characters, they have consistent logos and brands, and their messaging is just so on point. Like their content marketing is like phenomenal and they have this great sales marketing alignment, right? I mean, they have a great product, of course, too, but um, Salesforce for sure is probably like, they're definitely at the top of that pyramid. Also, Snap. Snap, even though I said I'd stay away from some of these B2C brands, Snap really does a great job translating their brand to B2B. And again, similar to Accenture, Snap has these like super bright, that yellow. Uh, it's just so distinctive when you're scrolling, like you will stop, you'll be like, what is this? Like what's going on? Right. And they just optimize all their creatives. So Snap does a phenomenal job as well. So there's some of the brands I think that are, that are doing it like really, really well.
0: Do you think... Cause I mean, that's such a the thumb stopping idea is very cool. Um yeah. and taking it back to maybe sort of informed creative, uh, what metrics in your perspective are are worth looking at if you're if you're seeking out to uh create thumb stopping creative, uh, but you want to be more informed, how does a creative go like, okay, I want to look at what uh what stats, what numbers, where where are we looking at? That's a great,
2: okay, that's a great question. And I guess before I would even look at numbers or like certain stats, the first thing I would do is I would take a step back and whatever vertical you're in, whatever you're trying to do, like uh, first up, it's always most important, like where you're actually advertising or like where those audiences are, right? Because you want to show up the right way and you want to make sure that you're reaching the audiences that you want to reach. But before even like looking at some of those KPIs, um, the first thing I would do is, is just thinking about marketing. There's like two... Uh, there's really two aspects to marketing. There's like this rational side and there's this emotional side. And the emotional side is like just that basically like what makes something thumb stopping? Like why, what makes me stop and wanna look at this? Like what's distinct about it? Like what's that visceral response I have? And the rational part of like also fun, but maybe like less obviously emotional. It's like the who, the what, the why, like the strategic messaging. So the first thing I would do is like if I were Accenture, I would look at professional services firms I would take a peek and I would say, let me look at like, you know, six or seven competitors in there and let's see, like, what is their creative look like? And if you're going through and you see basically everyone having pretty similar palettes, the way you want to stand out is to just be distinct. Right. And so it'll vary by industry. But you want to know you want to have an idea of what your competitors are doing. You don't want to obsess about it at the same time. And so I'm going to talk a lot of like nuance Because uh, I don't want to say like obsess about your competitors, but it's important to see if you want to stand out from them, you got to know what they're doing, right? And a lot of times people are afraid to take risks or everyone kind of, um, it's like everyone herds, right? So you have Mm -hmm. this very kind of like middling type of creative that comes. So you just want to be, think about like what will make us distinct, so for Snap, for example, if all your competitors are, again, similar, but that like really yellow, bright yellow creative, it's going to stand out because so you like lean into your brand identity. So this is before you get into like KPIs, I think it's just important to know like what are other people doing and like what is actually going to make people like, you know, have a stop scrolling through a feed that can be, you know, at the end of the day, you probably have scrolled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet. So like what is gonna be something that's like distinctive and a little bit different? And so that's what I would do before you get into some of the the KPIs. And the KPIs themselves, I think they will come naturally, right? It depends like what industry you're in, who your audiences are and like what you're trying to accomplish, right? And so what we see a lot or what I've seen a lot in my career is an obsession with like cost per lead. And I just think that that is genuinely not a good metric to follow. I really advise clients not to look at cost per lead. Because it's not linear, right? The amount of, uh, you can luck out and you can have lead gen campaign running and you just might happen. So happens that people that you're trying to reach are in market at that time. But something we talk about is we partner with these very smart people, much smarter than I, these like researchers (laughs) at all these different institutes and think tanks. And the Ehrenberg Bass Institute is one of them. And they've done all this research. Like I said, much smarter than me. And they have found, they call it the 95-5 rule. And so essentially it means that 95% of your target audience is not in market, right? At, and right now, only 5% is going to be in market at any given time. And so if all you're doing is running lead gen and lead campaigns, try to drive demand, you're only reaching 5% of that audience, right? And so you're going to see at first, it's just going to be a lot of diminishing returns. 1st just capture those leads. But once you've captured them, you're just going to see higher costs and lower performance. And so I really advise against the cost per lead um as like a be-all end-all I think it could be informative like over time but I would look at different things like quality impressions and again this matters where you're advertising right because impressions do matter if you're reaching the right audience right so like unique impressions of an audience you want to hit those are actually matter right uh I would look at and this is controversial but I think that conversion uh that CTRs are important actually if you're hitting again the right audience. Right. And if you see over time, mm-hmm. like we see, it varies, but it's going to take like seven to 14 touch points to convert someone. So you have to think, like, what is going to make these people convert? And if all they're seeing is like, buy our product, buy our product, they're not learning anything about you. They probably don't even know what you do. They don't know what makes you distinct. They don't know how you're going to help them. All they're seeing is you talking about yourself. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important to focus on awareness, like uh, full funnel content, really. Full funnel marketing is just so important, top and mid awareness, conversion, thought leadership, like you got to think through the entire marketing funnel.
0: Yeah. That's, that's really spectacular. Um, how does that play out on LinkedIn's landscape? Cause I feel like LinkedIn is such a valuable channel for B2B especially. Cause I think it's, it's just seen as a plate place where thought leadership exists, where brands, uh, show up and, and kind of, you know, re- everything from recruitment to like education, uh, how do those? How do those sort of marketing efforts play out on your channel? Do you mean in terms of how people leverage LinkedIn or how we see it? Yeah, I guess working in general. Right from your perspective, uh, are there full funnel efforts that are sort of exemplary on LinkedIn, or are there? Gotcha. Are there? Are there? companies that maybe use LinkedIn for one aspect of LinkedIn's service and might be better served to like broaden their reach or try to reach that 95% that is often elusive. If you, if you simply go with demand gen. Yeah,
2: that's a great question. So I can even speak from experience. Like, you know, my last like I said, so we're a startup, we had limited, uh, funds, right. So like a smaller budget, lean budget. And so what can be tempting with LinkedIn is um, the quality that you get on LinkedIn, and this is kind of like the reputation in general, is that it's like the highest of all these platforms. So when you get a lead, those are amazing leads. They're much more likely to convert. They're much more likely to like move through your, your own sales funnel. And so what happens is, what can happen, is that like a startup, you're in a high growth startup, you have a lean budget. And you're like, okay, we're going to test LinkedIn. We're going to go straight to lead gen. And then you see these amazing results, right? And I said, I speak a little bit from experience here. Uh, but very quickly we saw what we were, once we saw those great results, luckily, because again, I worked with very much smarter people than I am, they were like, you know what? We got to make sure that we have some great branding, like top and mid funnel content on LinkedIn as well, because we're only, we're going to start to see like diminishing um, returns in terms of leads. Because again, going back 955 rule, there's only so many people are going to be in market. And so this is something that can happen, I think with a lot of startups, you got a lot on your plates, right? And then you're testing a new uh, platform or product and you see great results. And then over time, if you don't pivot and adjust your strategy, like keeping track of certain KPIs, you're going to see diminishing results. And so what we always recommend or what I recommend specifically, I should speak just for myself, I can't speak for everyone at LinkedIn, to the clients I work with is a full funnel marketing strategy is critical, especially over the medium to long term. And the way that I like to think about it is that you want 60% of what you uh, create and promote on LinkedIn or share to be top and mid funnel. When I say top and mid funnel content, I'm talking about awareness, like Brand awareness, right? Brand awareness content. And then like you were uh, just saying, Nick, like thought leadership content, just content that helps like in this user and audience journey. So as they're moving through from problem identification basically to consideration, like, well, okay, now we know it's a problem. We're looking for a vendor, maybe eventually. And we want, you know, something that's a little meatier, something that provides more information about what you do, how you're solving our pain points, what makes you unique, all the way down to eventually that like lead gen capture where we're ready to look at like a demo. We want to see the product in in play. We want to talk to a sales rep, but it's critical to have 60% of the content top and mid funnel. And I'll say this, you can look at a company like Apple. Apple doesn't even do lead gen they do not do lead gen. All they do is top and mid funnel and they have the best brand in the world. uh, Arguably, I don't think anyone would actually argue against that, but they don't even do lead gen because they don't need to do lead gen because they have this amazing brand and they provide really great mid funnel content. They're like, they have the best product marketing because their product marketing isn't like lame and boring, right? It's just like very audience focused. It's like, here's how we solve your problems. So that's why sometimes it can elicit like a shock, but in the event that you're like, we got to decide between lead gen or... Branding and thought leadership content. I'm like, do branding and thought leadership all day, every day. Like, don't do lead gen because right. the lead gen will come. Yeah. Like you will get leads from doing top and mid funnel content. So I'm have always practiced this and I've seen it throughout my career. You know, like um, if you have just a bottom heavy strategy, uh someone on my team likes to say we do like a body poll in a virtual meeting or just an in-person meeting. She's like, Okay, everyone, you know, hold up your thumb and everyone. I want you to say like, where do you over index in terms of content? Is it top of funnel, mid funnel or bottom funnel? And then everyone's <laughs> like, it gets a joke, yes. but it does kind of get the point across right away that it's like, you do think about it. It's just, what do you want? Like short-term or do you want to be thinking for the medium to long-term and you can still do all of this. Right. And I get, get, I understand why, cause I've seen it myself, but you do want that full funnel strategy. If that answers the
0: question. Yeah. That's spectacular.
2: I will also add, I will also add that we've done all this research internally. And again, much smarter people than I, so you don't have to take my word for it. It's like data scientists doing this. And we've like identified clients that if they only do lead gen, on average, we did uh, this pretty like expensive study. And we saw clients that only did lead gen, their conversion rate on average was like 0.2, right? 0.2%. Clients that only did brand and awareness higher. So like 0.6%, I believe. But clients who did a combination, Right, that sixty forty split. It was one point two percent, and so the proof is in the pudding. Like if you, which is like the lamest, as I just said that, I'm like, why did I just say that expression? It's so lame, but whatever. <laughs> uh, it really is like the the mixture of brand and demand is is key. Yeah. Doing one or the other, I would pick brand, but only legion. No, nah, it's it's no good, especially for the medium to long term. Yeah, I like it. That's great right. pudding. I love that. <laughs> great pudding. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So how can other marketers and creatives start to understand their audience better today in our current world, current state of things? Um, are there any tips that you can offer?
2: Great question. And I know i said that for all these questions, but these are really good questions. They're making me think um, using my <laughs> small brain and do things. Something I think is key is to understand like who the hell your audience is in the first place. Like to mm-hmm. under, To have an agreement on who that is is key and you have to have that internally and that needs to be across the company because sometimes you'll talk to people and they'll say "Mm, we think our audience is x and another group will say oh we actually think it's y at first just understanding who 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 your audience is and why that is right like does it happen to be the people who purchase your product the most is it because when your company started they were the original audience target audience but it's changed i think it's really key to have like a conversation about like the why underfitting that. But once you understand who your audience is, to understand like what they care about, this is where it's really important to like pay attention to those, to, to metrics, right? Like yeah. to see what your click-through rates are, to see like what sorts, like if you're making, you know, video content, like what's making people actually like watch your videos, right? Like, mm-hmm. is it messaging that's resonating with them? Like, what do they care about? This is why it's important too, to have like a uh, multi-platform strategy too. I love email marketing. Cause you know, I, I love LinkedIn, LinkedIn's phenomenal, but I think it's important. Like email's great because you can see it's just a storytelling device, right? Like you have a, uh, a subject line, which is like your headline but then once people click in, you're gonna look for what is your click to open rate, right? So if people just clicking cause it's like a spammy headline and it's interesting but if someone's clicking from that and then they're clicking through to your website you've told like a cohesive story and you know that you're onto something. So it's really just important to, to pick up on these signals that they're telegraphing to you it's also just so key to read the news <laughs> like yeah. to know what's <laughs> going on at a macro level is <laughs> critical and i think this is something like i am a huge proponent i think that reading the wall street journal the new york times the financial times every day is part of my job because if i don't understand what's going on just in a macro environment then i'm just not understanding my clients so i think it's important to read the news and then i think it's important to understand the industry that you operate in also right because there's obviously nuances in terms of like what's going on in those individual um, industries, just like being well-read. If there's books that come out, like if your client's Apple, I would read, you know, every book there is about Apple. There's a great book that was just published called After Steve by Trip Mickel. I read that book. I highly recommend it. Just knowing what, you know, people are writing and saying about the company is important. Reading earnings reports are key because you're going to understand like a lot of times like earnings reports are just they're fucking gold and people like leave them there and no one reads them, but they're so, yes. they're just filled with so much information mm-hmm. and it's executive leadership telling you exactly what their strategy is. Like listening on earnings calls, these things are just so important to understand like all of that. But then on like a micro level. It's just looking at what they're, what's resonating with them because you know, like marketing is a, a your relationship, with your audience, it's bi-directional and it's dynamic. And so it's just, it is going to change over time. So you want to understand like what is resonating with them. And I can like use an example at way up. Um, we kind of, uh, boiled down at the time, like what the, the real like value props of the product were. And it was first and foremost, like diversity inclusion It was going to help, uh, you, uh, hire more diverse and underrepresented candidates, right. And get them through your, um, your ta funnel and actually hire these people so it was first and foremost then it was going to make your team more efficient and it was going to help lower costs and then our fourth bucket was kind of like we were like eh, this is all of these together right and that's how we devised our content calendar every single piece of content we made had to roll up to at least one and ideally multiple of those buckets and so over time like we divided it by each quarter was like we'd go all in on that theme And we could, again, sometimes like in certain quarters we was, it was totally okay to talk about different topics, but we wanted to see, especially over time, like which were resonating most and not just like which topics resonate most, but like which aspects of them were the audience most reactive to. And that's why it's so helpful to see like, okay, we noticed that they're actually like clicking through and like reading these articles look at the time spent on our site. It just keeps going up. Like diversity inclusion is just like blowing up. This is so important. And when we talk about it this way, this is what our audience cares about, right? So we're like understanding them and then that would inform how we would adjust our content strategy moving forward. So I think it's really important to just like pay attention and be thoughtful about what you're doing and not just go on autopilot. Not that anyone would, but it's
0: something that can happen. Yeah, definitely.
1: I love that. Are there any resources that you would suggest to our listeners that you found beneficial throughout your personal career?
2: resources that i find or have found uh beneficial like i said like reading just the news again i know it's like uh I don't, I don't know if anyone will listen but just reading constantly i really i listen to a ton of podcasts too i think it's really important i'm not someone to like when i read books i'm not someone who likes um i'm not reading like who moved my cheese like that kind of business book is just not my thing it's totally fine with someone else's just not for me i love to read books about. uh about business that aren't necessarily like business books. So one of my favorite books I might be up there is Disney war. Uh, and it's about the rise and fall of Michael Eisner at Disney and just yeah. watching or learning about that story. There's so many lessons that come through about just business, even marketing, you just have to infer them. And so I'd much rather like look for a lesson than have it like handed to me, but just like reading about how other companies have done things. So just books about other companies. I just read a book about PayPal, and x.com called the founders. And it's, uh, they actually interviewed a lot of the people like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, who are, you know, founders of PayPal and, uh, x.com. And so just like learning how different people approach sales and marketing or business in general. So like reading, listening, um, Brian Morrissey, he has his own podcast now, but he used to be the editor-in-chief of Digiday. I always find him really interesting. He's like contrarian, but not in a way that can be like annoying. So I find him really interesting. Um, LinkedIn itself, we have this internal think tank called the B2B Institute. They put out a ton of, and they're all, like I said, much smarter than I could ever be, but they put out a bunch of like really interesting research on B2B marketing in general. And it's helpful. They break things down and uh, they'll kind of show like what's important, how to think about certain things. The B2B Institute, I think is key. And again, just like reading and talking and like listening to people I find is super, super helpful. So those are just like some of the resources that I would recommend.
0: Yeah, that's I great. That. I have one question that might not be uh, B2B or marketing related, um, yeah. but it's a, a very modern phenomenon on LinkedIn. And I'm just curious from an insider what your perspective is on it, um, how people will almost post in a way that mirrors a post on like Facebook or something or, or talk about their their political leanings or something that's they're passionate about. And then inevitably it'll be filled with comments that are like, keep this off LinkedIn, or what this isn't a LinkedIn post? Um, Is that something that's happening more recently lately? Or do you do you feel like there's a reason that this is uh, this is becoming a new platform for people to sort of speak to more personal feelings?
2: I was gonna say great question, but you already know that I thought all these were good. So great questions. Um, You know, I think this is something that's just accelerated over LinkedIn. This was happening before the pandemic. But when you look at the when we see data on how members a uh, linkedin members you know interact with the platform we've seen and this is it was happening before a pandemic but it's only accelerated since that there's this uh merging of the personal and the professional right and i think we all see this in our own lives especially as a lot of people uh were working from home some of these like lines blurred right and as new generations come into the workplace i think that it's like a natural shift that occurs and so we see it as just a good thing that people want to post and feel free to post what they want to to share and linkedin has all these tools that you can vary, you can decide what you want to see in your newsfeed so if you don't want to see politics there's a way to just filter out any you just don't have to see politics we provide members with the tools they can have to create like a curated experience there are literally like tens of millions of people who want to see that and I think it provides like another lens to, to see someone. If you're posting about that, it's most likely something you are passionate about and care about. And I think that's great. And if people don't want to see that, they can just hide it from their feed or adjust the settings of their newsfeed. And we see this with like um, executives and companies too that have been increasingly like wading into topics that they wouldn't have in the past. And it's never straightforward uh, in terms of like guidance to give. But I see it only as a good thing that people feel and are like sharing more than just, you know, some standard line about uh, someone came into the office and, you know, something that's like, I don't know, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, something that's like boring and no one cares about. I would much rather be engaged and like activated by something that's thought provoking myself. But again, we give people the tools to decide how they want to engage on LinkedIn. And so it's really up to each person to decide what that experience looks like.
0: Yeah. I think it's fascinating. I like what you say about, uh, the merging yeah. of our personal and professional lives. Cause I do feel like from my perspective, LinkedIn is sort of like the social platform for professionals. You know, it's where you go to search for jobs or to represent yourself in a professional way. Um, but I mean, looking, looking at us right now, we're all in our homes and we're seeing each mm-hmm. other's styles and seeing, you know, like we're, we're sort of, we're coming with a lot more, um, than just showing up at a conference room in some stale building and going like, you know, hello, hello, hello. Ready to get started. You know, like we're, we're all here. Yeah. And I think too, and this is something I'm just kind
2: of like riffing here, but I think sometimes when people don't want to talk and this is my, I'm speaking for myself here, I should say. Uh, Sometimes when I'm like, I don't want to talk about a certain topic. It's more because of like the, Environment or the way that it's presented, I'm like, this is not going to get us anywhere. But if you talk about like environment and context matters. And so I've also seen just like really interesting, like thought provoking conversations happen on LinkedIn, especially that relates to things like companies, you know, taking a stand about social issues, which is again something that we saw really accelerate during COVID and George Floyd and this like push and pull of companies taking a stand. And I mean, It's happened this year with, you know, the don't say gay bill in Florida, and then Disney says something. And then the Florida legislature, uh, essentially like reprimands them takes away this like Texas tax exempt status. And then Disney goes quiet, but like, we don't know where this is going to shake out. And and someone on my team always says, you can't just like, and she says this about everything. and And I agree with her. You don't just post the post, you have to believe what you're posting about and you see this like if you're going to take a stand then take that fucking stand and really believe in what you're talking about and then it's a no-brainer because you're ready for what the repercussions are but if you're just doing it to kind of go through motions and i'm not saying disney by any means did it to just go through motions i'm just using that as an example you just have to kind of work through like what are i think it's like it can be like a self-reflective exercise of what do our what does our company care about Mm -hmm. uh what are our real values and like what do we stand for and what are the topics that we're going to speak out on? Because, you know, you can't talk, you can't speak out on everything. Obviously that would be, right. uh, it wouldn't be authentic. And it also just would be an exercise in like futility. Like, what are those values? And like, what are the topics we're going to really, you know, lean into and the why, like, why do we care about these? And a lot of times you just got to yeah. kind of go back to like, what are our true company values that are our true North star?
0: Yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm cautious to say, I wonder if it's becoming more of a, uh, like where a business is, is almost required to state their mission or to state where they stand on certain things where it feels like maybe there was a separation of, you know, business goals versus, you know, personal opinions on, on different, you know, topics of the day. But it feels like nowadays, uh, a business has to align with a mission or with a cause or yeah. with, you know, in order to, and I don't know if it ostracizes an audience, but it's, it's almost like in order to build an audience or build a, a further reach into their support network. I don't know. You know, I'd say
2: it's uh it, I definitely, I totally agree. And I think it's just, it's an interesting, like not phenomenon, it's just this trend that I think we've all seen. And then a lot of times too, it comes down to like who your, your number one priority should be like your, your actual workforce. And you yeah. have to make sure that they're happy. And if they're to your point, demanding that you take stands on certain issues, it's going to be real. That tension is only going to yeah. grow if you choose not to. Right? right. So there's no like right or wrong answer to any of these things. Um, but it's uh definitely something that companies are increasingly having to think about because yeah there isn't you can't just say oh there's we're we're a business like there's nothing to do with this anymore because these issues like impact people's lives obviously and your work your employees lives their families' lives and you have to figure out what is the the stance that we take and the why i just think it's really important to articulate that why
1: all this is actually going to be phenomenal for the next segment so stand with the brand There is a bit of a big elephant in the room with politics and B2B marketing. Um, In the most recent CMO survey, only 21% of senior marketing professionals thought their brand should take a stand on political issues. And within the B2B sectors, there's a few very notable companies who dove into political stances, including Starbucks and Lyft, where they stood up against the immigration ban. um, And their former Starbucks, former chairman actually expressed deep concern and set out a plan to hire refugees um, and building stronger relations with Mexico. And then Ben and Jerry's uh, took a stand in Australia and banned consumers from having two scoops of the same ice cream in its stores to protest against the government's refusal to recognize same-sex marriage. Each of these companies took a stance on items that aligned with their beliefs and understood that there are certain risks without thinking or perhaps um, worrying about that everyone should agree with them. Do you stand with B2B brands making a political stand or do you take a seat and think that they should shy away from these topics?
2: You know, and I, I, again, I think it's, what's really important is that I'm all for it. You got to take a stand and I I believe they should. I just think what's really important is to understand like what values you're leaning on, like what are we going to take a stand on and why and communicating that. Right. Mm -hmm. And I I think not taking a stand, I agree. It's just uh, if you're passionate about something too, and and Ben and Jerry's is a great example of a brand that's always done this, like they've never been afraid to, right. They've always led with that. And Unilever, which owns Ben & Jerry's, is very similarly, uh, especially yes. as it's transformed the past 15 years, is very much leans into these like corporate values that are important to it, like sustainability. Mm-hmm. And I think you see brands do this in their own ways, like BlackRock um, is pushing the uh, companies that invest in and in that uh, to be like more sustainable, right, to focus yeah. on sustainability, to fight climate change. And I think it, and for them, they see it and the way they position it, is that this is just like a business issue to us because- yeah. The climate's changing. And if you're not going to adjust and have this um, more sustainable, like lens of sustainability, you do things through, then you're just not going to be profitable for the long term. And we invest for the long term. Right. And to me, that's a great positioning because it's explaining this why. Here's why we care and and the why. And, you know, I was saying that this teammate of mine, she always says, don't just post the post. Right. You got to like walk the walk, not just post the post. And I think it's really important if you're just posting because you're like, oh, this is an issue de rigueur and I'm going to post about it. And then the second you get pushed back, you're like, delete, delete, delete. Like, then right. why did you do that in the first place? You know, you yeah. got to have the courage of your convictions. And that's why it's a really important exercise to be like, what are our company values? What are we going to take a stand on and, and the why? And then communicate that to your employees, too. And a lot of times the, this, uh, again, if we say your relationship in marketing is with your audiences, one of your o- main constituents or audiences, constituencies as a, an executive is your employees. And so, like, yes. what do your employees care? and What do you take a stand on and the why and having, again, the courage of your conviction? So I think it's important to figure out what that is beforehand. And then when an issue arises, which they inevitably will, you'll know exactly what to do. But I think it's important to be proactive and not reactive as well. If it's reactive, you're more likely to just post the post.
1: I absolutely love that because I think there is so many great things that companies can take a stand on if it does align with what they truly believe in. Because anybody, like you said, can put something out there, and it—you can. I think an audience can tell. At least I can tell when somebody actually means what they're putting out there. You can, and you—you know that value that they're adding because you're like, this is an awesome thing that they're, you know, focusing in on. Because you know, not every company can focus on every issue, but it's amazing to see, like, oh, they're focusing on this over here and here and here. Um, And I agree. I love. Ben and Jerry's they are as an ice cream brand that is just like paving the way and doing their own thing and also doing it um, in a way where everyone can get like, it sparks conversations and starts a movement without them maybe not even intentionally doing that. Um, I think that's been one of the coolest things to recognize when brands are speaking out, you know that they're very passionate about it um, and that they're trying to make a difference and start those conversations in the workplace and out of the workplace.
2: 100%. I think you nailed it. It's really about authenticity. People are not stupid. If you post something just to post (laughs) about it, everyone's going to be like, "Uh, okay, you know, and then you delete it. Like no one... And it's all it's doing is hurting you. I think it's important to be like proactive, think through these things. Yes. If you're going to take a stand, take a stand. But like also you need to get to work through because there could be pushback and you just have to be comfortable in being, I guess, a little bit uncomfortable. Ready. But like, yeah. Yes. And, like Ben & Jerry's great example. Patagonia is an example of a company. Yes. Patagonia is a B Corp too. So mm-hmm. even the sets of KPIs that they define like success by it, it is different. But like sustainability is obviously important to them. So there are plenty of companies that take stands like this. It's just, uh, you know you have to have the courage of your convictions once you do
0: yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'll just uh, relate it to one of the most common themes that comes up in this podcast talking about marketing is uh, a, our company's efforts to be more human or to appear more. And I think yes. that's a, a combination of all those adjectives like authentic and sensitive and caring and uh, perceptive um, and vulnerable. And I think a lot of that comes out through uh as, as you said, taking a stand and and having the courage uh, to say that we're sensitive about this issue. We care about this issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are just a group of people that, you know, are, are collectively working on this shared business goal, but this is how we want to point, you know, point our sales on this issue.
2: Totally. I think mean, again, you nailed. like, you know, I always said when I because in my team, we, uh, we consult on marketing. And then part of that is, um, the talent brand, you know, so companies trying to attract the best talent, they'll make content that's about like what it's like to work there. And my recommendation is always the same. I'm like, the way you do this is just spotlight your employees, let them talk about their experience. Don't talk for them. And there's a lot that can be said if they're like, if it's a company and none of my clients luckily are like this, but if they're like, we would never let our you know employees really talk. Then I'm like, then that says <laughs> everything. Anyone needs to know about working here. You know what I mean? Like, Okay, yeah. then uh, then we're muzzled and that who wants to work in a place like that? But I'm like, yeah. let your employees talk. Like if you want to be human, spotlight actual human beings. It's the way to do it. So I totally agree.
1: Yeah.
0: We always ask three questions at the end of each episode. Uh, and these are more about you as a human being. Uh, and the first question is, what have you done recently for the very first time? Okay.
2: I started playing tennis. So as a 35 year old. That, that has been my, I guess I technically started when I was 34. So, but it was just a few months ago. So playing tennis, which has been amazing. I moved to Los Angeles like a year and a half ago and you know, I might as well take advantage of this weather. And so I just love, I'm obsessed with it. I think it's so fun. Great workout. But playing tennis, it's been a, a fun journey, taking tennis lessons.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. Um, big time, I grew up a big time tennis player. That was like one of my sports as a child. So I love going out there and
2: I'm jealous. I wish I'd
0: started when I was younger. I also wish that I was six foot three instead of five ten. Cause you know, just, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. height <laughs> really does help. It does help with the serve, you know? like yeah, serve. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you had one thing, say you were invited to a show and tell right now, what one thing do you think you would bring?
2: I would bring either an iron or my kitchen scale. And I think the reason is because it's more just like emblematic of who I am. I iron everything and I'm super precise I like weigh all my food uh, because I'm, you know, just I I, I approach uh, everything very methodically. And so I think either one would probably be very emblematic of, of who I am. I like everything nice, neat and orderly, like the iron, or if it's in terms of the scale, I'm like if something is like, you know, you'll see this too, like when I make rice, if you just take a cup of it, like it says, it's gonna look, you actually get way more when you weigh it out. So it's not like a one-to-one, it's much more precise to weigh everything. And it just focused too. I'm very like uh, uh, goal and numbers oriented. So I'd say either one of those, even though I guess that's kind of cheating because it's two different things, but they're like on the same spectrum of, you know, like, uh, very organized, I would say. Yeah. I, I, love I, I hate to bring it back. <laughs> I like iron my sheets, you know, like I saw on TikTok this, this, this guy, he like irons a sheet every morning. All the comments were like, no one does that. And I was like, uh, yeah, some of us actually do do that. So I'm like commenting. It's like, like the first time I ever commented. And I'm like, some of us actually do iron our sheets. And like, just cause you don't, there's nothing wrong with that. But like, don't say that no one does this.
0: Yeah. that's so, amazing. You know, I, yeah. I was yeah. going to make the joke again. I'm like, what a perfectly linkedin answer just an yeah iron I, guess in my so. maybe, I guess maybe i am
2: maybe i am the linkedin brand i don't know maybe <laughs> i do embody it <laughs> uh,
0: and one final question uh, if you were to meet yourself uh, at a younger age what piece of advice would you give uh, a younger version of yourself
2: calm down
0: calm down or is my partner always
2: say calm myself i just uh i'm very type a i'm like very impatient i've gotten way better about this but i would just say calm down like things typically work out the right way you just put in the work and you know know what you can control and know what you cannot control and that you know life uh typically things will shake out for the best if you uh work hard treat people with dignity and respect and uh just calm calm down Mike just don't freak out about everything
0: (laughs) (laughs) I love that yeah that was special Mike I you're (laughs) a very inspiring guy. I really value this time that you shared. I can't wait for this episode. Um, If there's anything else you'd like to plug or anything else you want to mention before we go? No, just,
2: uh, if you have any questions about LinkedIn, reach out to me. I'm happy to chat through. I think it's a great platform, even though I work there, you know, I'm someone who likes to keep it real, no BS, but LinkedIn's great. So if anyone wants to talk or just talk about marketing in general, happy to do that as well. Awesome.
1: I love that.
0: Uh, It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you both so much. much, I really appreciate it. I feel honored to be on. You're listening to a Brand Folder podcast, where we like to say, strong brands live here. Join us as we build the Brand Collective, a podcast for anyone curious about the people behind the brands that we all love.
1: We're available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe.
0: And if you feel inspired, leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Until next time, this has been The Brain Collective.